0: awesome to welcome Rowan University Head Coach Joe Crispin to the Basketball Podcast. In his time at Rowan, Crispin has advanced the team to the NCAA Division III Tournament and been selected NABC Atlantic District Coach of the Year and the D3Hoops.com Atlantic Region Coach of the Year. Crispin is a former college standout for Penn State who, over the span of an 11-year professional playing career, played for approximately 28 different coaches in the NBA, ABA, CBA, Greece, Poland, Italy, Spain, Turkey, and Ukraine. And completed his fourth season as head men basketball coach at Rowan University. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is going to be fun. And uh, let's start with something uh, really interesting. And that's your team was fourth in the country in scoring last season, third in tempo. And according to you, not good offensively. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we were good in the sense that we scored a lot, uh, but we did not do it efficiently. Uh, when you look at the amount of possessions we've created, Uh, we were actually more of a defensive team and I, I would, I told our guys, I said, people aren't going to realize we're a defensive team until the end of the year. And, uh, people did start to figure it out. Our opponents did start to figure it out, but we were the team that if we got going, uh, we could, we could put up 115 on you, but if we weren't going, we were still going to score 95, but we were going to do it in a little different way. So we led, we did lead the country in free throws attempted and made so uh that's certainly made up for things scoring when the clock has stopped helps you
0: well let's focus on that first how did you get to the line at such a such a positive rate
1: so a lot of it was our pace i mean part of it was just literally more possessions um i started out you know coming off a no year with covid um you know i was barely in the office because we were still kind of in covid world um and i didn't want to deal with mass stuff, So I was working at home and we're in the gym and, um, I didn't, I kind of knew my team. I knew we had a lot of good one-on-one players. I didn't think we have a ton of great shooting, like not shooting first and shooting always helps your offensive efficiency. Um, and I thought, you know, one, uh, with the guys we had and the amount of good players we had, uh, we just needed to create more possessions and more opportunity for everyone. We needed to make the pie bigger, so to speak, uh, just so I had happy players. And I thought coming off a of COVID year, we would be pretty effective in just simply differentiating ourselves from everyone else. And uh, it worked until we got hit with COVID and injuries and <laughs> then it wasn't as effective. Um, and there were some things that I would build on and do a little differently, but there was a lot that, you know, you're susceptible to those things in that kind of season. And maybe I couldn't have done anything
0: about. Uh, pace is that just emphasis, uh, style, you know, some type of system? What what is creating pace for you guys?
1: Well, as I often say to coaches, I was speaking at a clinic on Saturday. Is you know, we're wise to listen and to define our constraints, right? And and that's why I appreciate you, what you guys do. I mean, that's I'm just huge on that at every level of of youth basketball and and my college team. But one of the things I think we don't do is, one, we look at our constraints maybe and define what they are and there's nothing we can do about them, right? Whether I don't have a great shooting team or whatever. But one of the things that we often are, aren't aware of is the constraints that we place on ourselves. And I try to be very clear about those constraints. And one of my constraints as a coach is I refuse to be boring. I literally can't be boring. I, I think it hurts my recruiting, and I don't necessarily love chasing kids down, so I'd want them to come to me, and the only way they come to me is if we're trying to score 100 points a game. So the way we play, uh, I can handle it. I liked playing. I kind of coach my players the way I wanted to be coached. A uh, simple golden rule, and I didn't like coaches telling me what to do, and I didn't like coaches calling out every play. I, I wanted to play. So I wanted to shoot in transition. I wanted and, you know, there's some give and take. You lose some things when you give that away. um, But you also gain some things when you give that away. You you create a pretty dangerous team. So one is just my preference. I I just I'm not going to be boring. Um, And I have lost games over a refusal to be boring. (laughs) I've done it once in my career. And we lost anyway because I had multiple guys injured. And I said, never again. I'll lose by 25 next time instead. But the second also is personnel. Right? If you have a lot of good players and you feel like you're not even sure who's who numbers six through twelve are, um how do you figure that out, and how do you give ample opportunity to college basketball players to prove that? Um, you need to give them opportunity. You need to give them chances and and philosophically, you need to give them chances in live action. Um, practice is great, but I'm all about the games, and there's some guys who are better in games than others. And in order to find that out, you got to play them. And give them the chance to shine. And uh, I, you know, the last thing is always like I'm trying to build a team that can beat the best teams. And we're not yet. We're not the elite. So if we're underdogs, um, and although you know maybe this year we can take that next step, but if we're underdogs, we have to be different. Uh, we got to know what our slingshot is, and our pace, in large part, is a central part of that slingshot.
0: And how does that philosophy of fun and I'm not going to be boring? How does that translate to the defensive side of the ball?
1: Well, we, we try to be aggressive. I mean, we, we are very, very aggressive, um, sometimes a little too much. But, uh, you know, there's a way in which there's a way to play defense that makes offense harder. Uh, I'm just simply trying to play defense in a way that makes scoring easier and not just not necessarily always in efficiency terms. Right. Because I need more of that and we need more of that. But sometimes it literally is simply volume. Right. There's a balance. Every coach will say, well, in order to make more shots, we need to take better shots. And of course, that's true. But it's also true that to make more shots, you take more shots. (laughs) And, you know, me as a shooter, if you gave me 15, I'd probably find a way to make 40 to 50% of them. If you gave me four, that's a lot more difficult. I think the same thing is true for a team. So, um, I think just the ability to to move in and out of stuff. We press uh, almost all the time. Uh, we might adjust how we do so, or to what extent. Some teams we literally never allow them to run their offense ever. Um, you know that's the opposite of the golden rule. Do to them what you don't want done to you. Um, so we'll disrupt your rhythm and just say, you know, you might beat us, but you're not running your offense ever. And we'll trap and we'll rotate and we'll trap and we'll rotate. Um, you know we do a lot of things that people would probably think are crazy but statistically you know we play behind guys um we just jump behind them we jump to the right hand and just try to trail them and force action um because as i often tell people you know people think i'm crazy for doing so but then you ask your your fellow coaches how much they work on something like that and they never do so what's the risk here um it's just a it's a risk that looks really risky, but really, it's not as risky as people think. And that's why we give up eighty two points a game, but people are only shooting 40, 41 percent. I can live with that
0: you you reference doing things that people think are crazy. Isn't it crazy that people think giving players freedom and allowing them to be the best version of themselves is crazy?
1: <laughs> oh, it, I tell them everyone else is crazy. And, yeah. and this is at every level of play. Yeah. Um, we limit fifth and sixth graders from shooting the ball. And then we wonder why they can't do so four to five years later, right? The same thing is true. Uh, kids surprise you. Players can do more than you think, and when you put the limitations on them too quickly, um, you fail to even learn how good they can be. They fail to learn it, and they often resent you for it, and then you fail to learn it. But from a uh, just a creative standpoint, um, I just think it's wrong, and and I often say to people. My brother is a commentator i always tell him like don't be the commentator who says that's a bad shot says who Adolf rupp like who came who said that who where did these standards come from right and i always tell people i wasn't a rebel off the court but i was a rebel on the court during my time because um you know when the coaches would say you can't shoot that fadeaway, away and i said well At Penn State, they said, we don't shoot the fadeaway. I said, what do you do now? (laughs) Because I'm good at it. Like, I can make this shot better than anybody can make any shot. I'm shooting this shot. And I wouldn't relent on that. I was difficult to coach. Oh, you can't shoot threes off the dribble. Says who? I'm shooting 40%. That was gospel. That was law in... It wasn't gospel because it wasn't good news. It was law in the NBA during my time. And it was pure stupidity. Um, so we, and what, you know, I say this to my coaches every year, we'll have a, we'll get on the court, go through some things we want to do differently this year. And I always tell them, remember, we're doing something right now. Everyone's doing something right now that 25 years from now is, we'll all know is stupid, right? We'll all know is stupid. Let's try to identify what those things are. Let's think outside the box, but the lack of creativity, the lack of freedom, it's a sin committed by coaches everywhere for kids and players of all ages in my mind.
0: Well, already, big shout shout out to Josh Merkel, who connected us and told us we would align on a lot of this. (laughs) Absolutely. Mark knows me well. You know, it's so funny because, again, I'm coaching youth players right now, my daughter's age group. And again, people think it's crazy that I'm spending no time on teaching a proper layup or shooting form outside of just some commonalities. And all of it is on decisions. Okay, we're going to coach if you're open, shoot it. And if you're not, don't, obviously. Shoot when you're open, pass when you're not, drive when everyone else is covered. And that's that's our mantra. And it's so simple to coach that. And to me, that will translate for them throughout their basketball life more than anything else, because if they get good at that, they'll want to develop their skills and
1: it'll change their basketball life. And Mm -hmm. we often say that to our parents at the youth level, because I have, you know, my own kids I've coached growing up. My daughter's a ninth grader. My son's a 10th grader. I have another son who's a sixth grader. And I got a seven year old playing three on three. And I always tell people, like, if you can clarify um, exactly what I'm teaching at this moment, then I'm not doing it well, right? And I, I always tell the parents, um, I, I could impress you more with my, the order I could create in any given practice or workout. Um, I'm going to be working with kids later tonight. And I could, could do a great job having the cones out and this, that, and the other thing. And... Yet, I'm going to do all these things that make you go, Is this guy crazy? <laughs> and I'd say your kids are getting better. And over time, you'll see they're getting better and they're developing um, puzzle solving skills. We always say, especially with zones and man to man and the things I hate at the youth level, um, uh, is, you know, we teach kids at a young level. And we're, I'm getting these kids in college, right? I have to. I have to let them loose, right? I have to help them tap into to what they really know, their instincts, their gut, uh, because essentially we've placed little childlike puzzles in front of them, and they they've solved them, and they dump it out, and they solve it again, and they dump it out, and they solve it again. And I said, if you want to create a bet, a great puzzle solver, you'll have a puzzle that always changes. Uh, that's what man to man does. That's what trapping does. That's what pressure does. At least if it's developmentally appropriate. That's what. Chaos does in many respects. Um, but if you want to create a good basketball player, a great basketball player, and even when I go to the extent, you know, if you want to create a player, my son says he wants to be a pro. Well, the way to educate that is not the way people think. Uh, it, it's not always pretty either.
0: Well, and, and again, a common thing for youth players, again, is that we have to follow this. You know, we all believe in nonlinear pedagogy, but we must follow these steps oh, they can't learn this until this age, they can't learn that till that age, or we've got to follow these progressions of learning. And as you have referenced already, that's not the case. All of your kids have learned different things at different stages, including going back to the basics of walking. They didn't all walk in the same way and learn to walk in the same way.
1: And at different stages. I mean, the the, the story I share oftentimes is um, we started a first through fourth grade, three on three kind of full court leg. we call it because it's really half court, full court. And uh, I did that 10 or 11 years ago when my son was um, six or seven uh, with a friend of mine. And there's clips of it online, the way we do it. And uh, I often tell people that early on, um, nobody was doing this, right? And I had a friend of mine whose son got involved and he said, he goes, after about three weeks, he said, if I didn't know you guys, I would think this was insane you know, cause kids are traveling a little bit, they're doing that. And they're, you know, we got to educate them. Oh, remember you got to pass the ball, whatever. Uh, very loosely, you know, broad based structure or lack thereof. Um, but they learned the game, but his next line was the best one. He said, but he's improved more in three weeks than he has, than my older kids had in years. And I said, that's exactly how it works. Right. And I think that the the, the concept is true but i think what people don't realize is uh and this is kind of what why I, part of the reason why i do what i do at the college level is um, we've created fragile basketball players um you know so i love that term anti-fragility with uh, nassim taleb is a super favorite book of mine and i always operated that way as a player i refuse to be fragile and that's often why i had some conflicts as a coach with coaches uh, not bad. I always like, liked them and they liked me. But in terms of the way I played, I had this notion that if I could come off this ball screen and shoot a 28-foot-three and make it, I'm going to make everyone else's life easy. And I'm going to expose where the defense is fragile. Um, and I always tell people I was in the NBA my rookie year, and that was the easiest place I'd ever gotten a three-point shot off. It was no one could guard the three ball screen off the dribble at that time. And that was the best thing I did. So here's this weapon that's exposing the fragility of the defense that you're not willing to lose um, or that you're not willing to use. And that's the same thing with um, college coaches, professional coaches, not as much anymore in the NBA, but overseas it happens is they create players and teams that are very fragile. And if you can identify where that is, you can gain a competitive advantage. So when I say like, yeah, we'll just run out and say, you know, I don't want to watch film all night of this team, so we're just going to trap you and rotate and get really good at what we do, so I don't have to. I can go to bed. Love that. (laughs) Get ready for the next game.
0: (laughs) Love that philosophy, and uh, I mean, so many things to bring out there. I mean, first of all, your half court, full court reference there, Uh, isn't it amazing? Basketball helps players get better at basketball. It's it's that simple, isn't it? (laughs) It's that
1: simple, and. Well, and I always reference the playground, right? I grew up on the playground, and and you know I have so many stories. Uh, my dad was a was a teacher. Like I have my grandfather's a coach. Dad was a good coach. My mom was a teacher in music. So like I'm surrounded with educators. Didn't necessarily love school, but love sports. But um, I remember early on when I started with the youth stuff, I just said to my dad, like there were things you assumed about us growing up that you could assume. You could assume we were out at Kendall School playing six on seven and three on three and 21 and one on one and two on one and all this stuff and by ourselves and being creative and using our imagination. And I said, you can't assume that anymore. And that was foundational to what you were teaching us in the winter. I had my dad for three or four months a year until I was about seventh or eighth grade. Every other thing we did was unstructured. Everything we did we didn't have any summer leagues. We didn't have any fall leagues. We didn't have any spring leagues. We didn't have anything of what I'm doing, sadly, um, or, or good. Actually, it was better. It was better than what I can give kids because uh, you know, there were different ages, there were different abilities. You went to, you changed playgrounds, you went to different places and you interacted with different kids and created new teams. And now we create all this structure that's supposed to make things better. But in fact, it really makes things worse, right? I have a, Whole chapter of my book that's devoted to the simple line that everything we needed to know about offense, uh, we learned on the playground. And it's true.
0: Well, and the, the difference, it's it's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. And what's different is okay, yeah, you may have to structure the gym time and schedule the gym time for them, but that doesn't mean we have to structure the practice or structure the game. And I think that's where adults kind of miss the boat a little bit is yes. We may have to provide the gym time because they're not going to go to the park and play for various reasons, but we don't have to structure the workout, do we?
1: Correct. And and if we do have to structure the workout, this is even the step, step you know, open gyms are a tremendous blessing to kids because mm-hmm. uh, they might need to structure those times. But if we do have to structure a practice at any level, we can't skip the foundation. Because if the foundation isn't there, we have to give it to them. And that's play. And that is a pretty free play. And it also involves things that are unseen, like making your own teams, like calling your own fouls. All these things that we learned because adults weren't around, uh, we have to give kids a chance to learn it in our practices. If that's what we have, and we're in charge we can't skip that step and i think that's a mistake a lot of people make is they're so quick to just skip they don't realize how important that step is and they often don't realize that it hasn't happened yet so you know when i get kids in a, a small group or a league or whatever uh, we're running a half court 3 on 3/4 on 4 teaching based league but it's ex- you know exactly philosophically where we're at We're going to always tell the parents, we're going to start with the general. We're going to start with the concepts and then we're going to move to some specifics, right? It's like language learning. You know, if when I went to Italy for three years, I didn't pick up on Italian because I was looking at my textbook the whole time. It was because I was hearing Italian. I was immersed in Italian. Then I had to try Italian a line at a time and I sounded like an idiot and people would correct me once in a while. But over time, you pick it up and you become better at listening first and then you can. Communicate so it's language learning um, in the way language is best learned. And you know what I said to the coaches on Monday night, as I said, you see the kids get better over twenty minute span of just you know we were we were emphasizing spacing and ball movement, people movement. And so I've given you this one conceptual thing, but it would have been more impressive if I had given you the script, if I'd given you the sentence. And we'll do that too for this because it's a teaching thing. You want kids to learn what a curl screen is and a back screen and whatever. We'll do that too, but the concepts and the the big picture comes first. And you know that's the I, I just use all these analogies all the time, and it's true for every single level. College players today, I hear it from I hear it from so many coaches about what these kids lack, and oftentimes these are guys who've been in college their whole career, so they don't know why. And I just always tell them, like, if you spend more time at the youth level, you'll figure out why.
0: Uh, your book, Offense Wins A Player's 12 Foundational Principles for Great Basketball Offense, uh, available on Amazon. I know you won't plug it that way, but. Uh, no,
1: thanks for the plug. Yeah, no, I appreciate uh, it. I probably you know, should. It's out there. Should. I forget I
0: wrote it. Well, hopefully after this, people will read it and uh, connect more with this because, uh, yeah, I, I am on your side. Like, I really think we can do better in development, but we often think of development as, again, fundamentals. And when we think about fundamentals, we've got to redefine it because you just explained what fundamentals are. Yep, It's space. It's finding space, creating space. It's not a dribble. It's not a pivot. It's not these things. They can learn these things to add value. But the initial part is just learning how to space and learning how to play, and that applies to both offense and defense, doesn't
1: it? It applies to offense and defense, and it's a retraining of the gut. In many respects. So, if we're training offense and defense well, um, we can train them at the same time. And, you know, that's a mistake I think a lot of coaches make at every level is, you know, they operate like offense and defense happen in separate universes and they're so intertwined. I mean, you want your offense to be great with an advantage. Well, you want your defense to be great at a disadvantage. So, those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can work on those things at the same time every single day. Um, if you just do shell drill with no defensive disadvantage, all you're working on is the beginning. And what I often tell coaches is I said, you know, and I might be an extreme sometimes. Sometimes I got to work more on the beginning as a college coach, but I spend the vast majority of my time working on the end, not the beginning. On offense and defense, the end of offense is we have a slight advantage that we want to build upon and get a good shot. And, you know, the way we play, we just want to get any half decent shot. We're, we're not as picky as other people because of our pace. But uh, defensively, it's the same thing. We want to be the best in the country. I want to assume that we're going to get beat. We're not playing the sisters of the poor here, right? Like we're playing good college basketball teams with good players. We want to be great after we get beat. And those things are not Mutually exclusive, they can be worked on at the same time. So even defensively, um, it's people think it's skipping steps, but you know, uh, my I use my son as an example because him and his friends have been a lot of guinea pigs for this kind of thing growing up. But he'd never, we'd never grew up doing shell drill. I mean, it was minimal. Right. As they got older and they got a little more advanced, we might refine what they already knew. But the bulk of it was three on three play, four on four play. All right. uh, Fly by games and trap the ball and then go stop it or any number of things we could do to create an advantage for the offense. Because the younger the kids are, the more the offense needs an advantage. Well, the kids have good instincts flying around defensively, not because I've shown them film, not because I've um, you know, broken things down. It's because we've put them in the context of this disadvantaged play or advantage for the offense, depending on how you look at it. And they just know. And what I often say to him um, is, you know, if I asked you, how did you know to go do that? Or how did you know that guy was going to be open? Or how did you know to throw this hook pass across court to the guy in the corner off this ball screen? He knows now the answer is, I don't know. I just knew. That's the kind of that's the kind of player you're trying to create. You're trying to play a, a player who can who can play with his guts, and you know I I attract these kind of players because this is my philosophy. And when players see it, they know it when they see it, right? And they know they want it, so they end up you know transferring here. Um, and usually good players want that, but there's plenty of kids who can't do that because of the way they were brought up. They they need this same puzzle over and over and over again. And I think they're they're pretty fragile and they're not as effective, sadly, because of it.
0: Well, I'll promote your book and you just promoted my membership community because that's exactly what we share. Yeah. That 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 advantage, disadvantage and figure it out and you know oh, give figure it out's my,
1: my favorite three words. That's my favorite three coaching time. word.
0: Yep. It's it's all the time. And I say it all the time as a parent. I say it all the time as a coach. It, figure it out. I can yep. give you an answer that I think is the best answer, but that doesn't mean I'm right. Yes, because
1: your answer might be different than mine, and I said your it to my players. All is different, the, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, and you're trying to create players who have more and more answers, mm-hmm. right? And I always say to people, again, I go back to why we started this little three and three league and why my programs are run the way they're run at the youth level, but then also at the college level. Is I said, like, for me as a player growing up, um, one of the best compliments you can get. Especially as a boy from the suburbs, like when you go into the city, is that kid can play, like he knows how to play. And I always say to people, "What do we mean by that?" Right? Like we mean a lot of things. There's that's a loaded thing. It it means you can essentially go into any context in the world and play. So you can go to some guy who's running a set every single time and make that work because you have the language to understand what he's teaching, right? And if you want to survive long enough in the basketball world, you're going to encounter that, right? But you can also go to the city playground outside your element and make that work too, right? And, you know, especially speaking as somebody who played in the pros, you know, I went to the Lakers and we're running the triangle offense and I had to understand the language well enough to at least hang and make the team and give myself a chance. But then three months later, I'm playing for somebody that, you know, wants to score 150 flying up and down. Well, you don't really have a choice about if you can't make that work, you can't get a paycheck, you know? So your ability to speak the language and play in different ways and find a comfort level there, it's a basketball education. And if you haven't been given that education, you will fail and you'll lose some of that and you'll limit your opportunities. Um, so the broader, the, the experiences, uh, the more you can increase that language in diverse ways, the more you're somebody who can just figure it out uh the more opportunities you give yourself and it's just an incredibly uh underestimated value
0: playing in the triangle uh did that did that help your philosophy because the essentials of the triangle is obviously it's a structure but then within that structure it has a solution or a possibility to anything
1: yeah absolutely it's got an answer for everything and Mm -hmm. you know I've done uh even as a coach like I've used uh, scripts, right? We call them because I had very clear, defined, and it depends on your personnel. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the the book as a context, like I wrote this, I finished writing it in like 2013, uh, shortly after I had retired. Um, so I wrote it before I ever coached uh, on purpose, and I'm rereading it now. And there's a couple things in there that I would go, mm, I don't know about that, but I wrote it because if this is how I felt as a player. And this is these are the complaints I heard the most as as a a player in the locker room. Then I that's a limitation placed on me as a coach that I have to respect. And my experience with the triangle, I think I I write most of the chapter two about that is a positive one. Um, It was these limitations that were our guides. That if you just understood them well enough, they made play more instinctual. Right. So you know. In high school, we ran, the, we played really, really fast, but we would default to just running the flex, right? This is mid 90s. We'd run really, really fast. We would shoot as quickly as we could, but it was super basic. But you're dealing with, I was the only kid on my team my freshman year pretty much who dribbled my left hand. Everyone else was, so we were limited. Well, that helped us play. And I think one of the challenges is when I believe this, um, you know, this notion of fragility is like finding the right balance for how much, uh, where the guardrails should be, right? Just, there, there are times to make the road wider. There are times to, to make the narrow, road narrower, depending on what level you're at, on who you have, right? Um, on how many you have, for example, right? Um, you know, uh, I always said this, that you mentioned Coach Merkel, right? He's got, he's got the best player in the country. Well, his guardrails last year, at least his guardrails were more narrow because of that. Um, that's wise. I we weren't even clear who our best player was at the beginning of the season, so I created these really really wide guardrails to say, hey, let's go as wide as we can. Our ninth player might lead us in scoring. That makes us dangerous in a different way, right? Um, there's a lot of freedom within that. Uh, having your own triangle offense doesn't mean they all look the same and they're all very narrow. It it depends on who you have and you know just structurally and and philosophically. Fifth, my fifth and sixth graders, the there's it's broad as possible, right? Like we call it passing game, and it's called you got about three seconds of the ball, and you got you can't pass and stand. You can do any number of things, and of course, we'll teach them and we'll say, All right, now we're just gonna pass and cut so you can language learn while you're doing it. But that's pretty much our offense is move it every three or two and don't pass and stand, or if we're in practice, it's a turnover. So that's a really, really broad structure for teaching. But because they're young, uh, I think that's developmentally appropriate, and it helps them over time. Same thing: you're open, you shoot. Because I always tell them, if if you don't shoot when you're open, you're retiring in JV. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely,
0: so you're, you're not going to enjoy you're playing right. the game later. That's for sure. No, no,
1: and you're not playing for me either, unless you're yeah. like six five and can go at people at the rim. So, um. But I think you know. Even when I wrote the book, I say this over and over again: is I think this does these principles don't tie you into doing a specific thing, right? Because it's depending on where you are and who you have, and you, I might, I might have needed to adjust radically because I had seven guys instead of eleven or twelve by the end of the year, couple games because of COVID and injuries. Now maybe you got to narrow those things down a little bit. Um, but uh, you're always dealing with what the constraints should be, and the triangle was just pretty perfect for the time in which it was at and for the personnel they had, that's for sure.
0: And throughout this all, I mean, whether you use the term or not, you just reference constraint. This is a constraint-led approach. You're absolutely using that. And for people that kind of are still trying to understand that, what you're basically saying is, yeah, sometimes you limit something to afford something else. So say I limit your dominant hand, that's to afford you the opportunity to develop your weak hand. And that's how you develop things within a game and within playing games, whether they're small-sided games or the game.
1: Yeah, i I was speaking Saturday to a group of coaches, pretty much all about this, and they asked, like, "Is there anything you do that isn't like this?" And I said, "No, I, I just can't escape it. It's just the way I think." And again, I, I the the story I tell is, I said, from 1990. Seven to about 2012 or 13, I might as well have been on a spaceship. I mean, I was not involved in coaching or youth basketball or AAU. And when I came back and started investigating, I was, I retired because I wanted to coach. I didn't have to retire. I just kept saying no to jobs. I, at this point, I don't know what I was thinking because I got paid better for that. But the, I wanted to coach. And so I started investigating and just checking out the scene and youth levels and everything else because I started you know, doing those things. And my first reaction was, what in the world are we doing? I I didn't. And again, I come from teachers and coaches. So I did have a teething, teaching uh, philosophy, whether I realized it or not. It was, It was given to me whether I realized it or not. But a lot of it was just, this doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, when I worked out back in the day, we would do a three dribble limit. And If I lost, I would do a five dribble limit because I never lost that to my friends. I was better off the bounce. Well, you know, when we started playing one-on-one, I thought, I don't want these kids taking seven seconds, jabbing people down. So, all right, guys, you got three seconds. We're doing a closeout. You got three seconds to score. You got three seconds to shoot. All right, guys, now you got five seconds because you're attacking from half court. All right, now... You got five seconds, but these catch and shoot ones or three seconds, but these catch and shoots are worth five because I want you to shoot them and everything else is worth one, two. It just was the, it just, that's what came to mind, right? If I wanted this kid to learn what I wanted to learn, and I often say to youth coaches especially, but it's true at the college level, with all kids today, you want to trick them into learning what you want them to learn. Uh, Always, not as much as possible. Literally always. So what's the game coach? What's the rules? What's the limitations? Are just normal questions we ask in our program. And, and again, it doesn't lock you into anything because a lot of these games and structure for us uh, are pretty wild. Full court, five on four continuous, one guy dropping off. You need to communicate. Turnovers are minus five. Layups are plus five. They got all these things, but they're designed to reinforce what we value. Um, And when you do it that way, again, kids process that and they start to adjust to those rules on their own and become wiser basketball players.
0: Hey coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballimmersion.com. Get the most out of yourself and your players. Since 2014, thousands and thousands of coaches have become members of our community. We would love for you to join too, but don't just take our word for it. Listen to what a recent new member told us. I subscribed to Basketball Immersion on Monday. What an awesome site. Beats the crap out of Netflix. And here's what a long-term member told us. BDT and Eliminating the Fluff has been the reason we have become successful as a program. A Basketball Immersion membership has been our secret weapon. What are you waiting for? It's time to next level your players and team. Join our membership community at www.basketballimmersion.com. We look forward to sharing everything with you. I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later, coaches uh, not saying the things they really want to say. Um, <laughs> and, and I feel that way on this podcast, obviously a lot, and I, I'm respectful of things. But when you just brought up dribble limits, that is such a trigger for me because yep. I just feel that unintentionally coaches have caused so many problems for players with dribble limits. Dribble limits are one of the dumbest things you can do because it teaches players to pick up the ball without a decision. And we never want that. And when I watch young players play, the biggest problem is they don't pass to advantage. They dribble till they're stopped. They pick up the ball. They're dead. And now we have to work on getting out of trouble all the time. And uh, that's such an easy solution based on what you just said, which is give them a time constraint. We'll give them a direction limit sometimes, but a time constraint. Hey, score. We don't care how you score. Get a shot off in three seconds, five seconds.
1: The the time constraint is my absolute favorite. And the only time I ever use a dribble limit is essentially within about 12 feet Mm -hmm. so that we could work on the pivot foot.
0: Okay. So you're working on a specific dead situation, right?
1: Yeah. You're trying to work, you're trying to get them to shoot. And sometimes we'll do zero dribbles, five seconds in the post and they essentially pivot until they can get a shot off. So if you, you know, even that's contextual, right? It's not, you know, you can pivot in a circle all day you want without defense, but when you add defense, now you're increasing learning exponentially. So that's it, the only time I've ever I will ever, and I I do do it, but it's very purposeful. And there's they're learning how to get a shot off with the pivot. They're not, yeah. you know. And again, they're usually kids who can't handle the pivot foot and time constraint, because then they would freak out and throw a hook shot over the backboard.
0: And saying that, that's what we do. We we I know they're going to be in this situation throughout their life, so I have to now say, okay, take two dribbles and go dead. And now yes. we'll teach you how to get out of trouble. Yes. And that's and always you, a, and that's a game. That's not a one-on-one. That's not a one on o That's a game situation.
1: Yep, yep. And you can create defensive rules and any number of mm-hmm. things. Um, I forget where we started with that
0: question. I don't know, but I have another thing that I want to oh, go to. Oh, time constraints. If I go to time constraints, if, okay, I, go go. Time
1: constraints, if yeah. I can just please make a plug, I have like 75 minutes on YouTube on why we need a shot clock. Um, because oh. I, I, unless it's my son's game, I have a real hard time watching high school basketball in New Jersey because the games are in the 30s or 40s. And the shot clock is the greatest example of the constraints led approach. It teaches better basketball, right? So, what I always tell people is, you know, in the States, we do have more really good basketball players, but most of them are playing without a shot clock and are therefore dumber than the kids internationally. It creates dumb, inefficient basketball players and it does affect, it does create poor coaching because it enables you to reset. Ad nauseum, and it makes me leave at halftime because I just can't watch it. So the constraints is the shot clock, and I always tell because people say, "Well, well, you know, how low can it be?" And I say, "Well, you're you're asking the wrong questions. It could be 12 seconds, and kids will adjust. And if you, I, I, I use the high school group I had at this clinic. I said, "All right, we're going to play with 12 second shot clock. You got three seconds with the ball." They started creating better shots in those 12 seconds than when they just had three seconds of the ball and not 12 seconds, right? When I didn't, when they had unlimited, they were passing the ball, passing the ball. And I had to say, you know, are we trying to score here or are we, <laughs> what are you doing there? So the constraints are the teacher, right? And I think it's wise teaching, but it's also what I call just a calculated laziness. Um, it's better teaching, but it's also like, I don't want to yell at you to move the ball. So I'm just going to have someone on the sidelines count and the ball will move. Great. And you'll look like you're running an offense. No, you're just listening to the three second clock. That's what we do.
0: Trying to create an advantage and yeah. in, in a shorter time, I, yep. I'm all with you with non shot clock. I just, there's no, there's no argument to have a, to not have a shot clock at this point. That makes any sense. None. Um, the rest of the world, as you know, having played what for 28 different coaches and different yep. places around the world, I mean, you know, I mean, the rest of the world plays with the shot clock and we always reference the Spanish system, the Serbian system or this or this or this. You know, it's not necessarily better coaching. It's just that at a young age, the constraint of the shot clock encourages players to play with more decisions and to play faster.
1: Well, and they have there also it's it's different constraints, too, because the the kids there um, are typically not as athletic and skilled as our kids in the States. So. They it have be scary to be if
0: America played with the shot clock at young ages. How much better basketball would be! And you're already the best basketball country in the world.
1: We're com- we're already the best, and we would be completely dominant because we're losing a ton of kids, and they're and the kids are learning. You know, there's so many things you can say about the shot clock, but the one as most basic, people think. Like, well, one, people always bring up cost, And I say, well, then fire your coach and hire the shot clock because it's a better teacher.
0: Malaysia has shot clocks. It can't be cost.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, the richest country in the world talking about costs for shot clocks. Yeah. And, but what I often say is with these kids is that there's so many kids who never develop the capability to shoot because they've grown up playing without a shot clock. They are capable. If they were playing with a shot clock, there'd be eight on the clock and they have to take it now that they're not there's eight on the clock and they don't take it because there's nothing on the clock and they give it back to the best player so the best get better everyone else doesn't get better because we're playing without a shot clock if you want to win the game that's often the best way to play it as a coach but the moment you introduce the shot clock the coaches get better they get more creative etc so there's so much to be said to that um but you know even just with the constraints right too of like who's your best player what does he do best the higher you get the more those questions are right the younger you are i think the less they are because you, you want to develop everybody better
0: you know and i'm gonna go here first uh i'm grateful because i know with your pedigree and your background you could have easily gone division one and become an assistant coach and i'm grateful that you became a head coach faster so you could tinker with these ideas
1: i am definitely them. tinkering i'm yeah. definitely
0: that's But but I think there's a lot of coaches that probably feel the same, but because of the allure of obviously moving up in levels and all that, and rightly so, I'm not not judging that. But we lose out a lot of creativity because of that as well, the security of a job versus the reality of being able to tinker like you are.
1: Pressure and paychecks. That is often what uh, makes you play it safe. Uh, Now, I have never been one to play it safe. I'm pretty strong in my beliefs, always have been. Um, and I want players to have fun and I think I can explain what I believe well um, enough to justify it in the press conference. That, the other thing I always say to my brother, it's the pressure, it's the paycheck, and it's the press conference that often dictates someone's uh, philosophy or someone's decision-making as a coach. So, you know, he's even, my brother's even said that to coaches who make millions. Uh, they'll say, Hey, what's your brother up to? And he's like, Oh, you know, Joe, he's trying to score a hundred. He's trying, he's trying these things. A couple of them don't work. And, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes I go, eh, I don't really like that. I got to change that. Right. There's things I'll do differently this year because of it. Cause I literally am tinkering and I'm free to, because when we lose on Wednesday night, I might be the only one who really, really cares. Um, and that's kind of true, right? Yeah. My, but I'm the only one standing up late thinking about what I should have done. So at the higher level, I get that. Uh, but I think we're losing a lot of cool basketball creativity because of those three pressures and because of the way coaches typically respond to those pressures is, you know, when you get to that level, my brother has said it. And when somebody asks and says, oh, man, they usually say like, yeah, I would love to do that. My brother says, you can't. And they say, what do you mean I can't? And he says, you make too much money. There's too much pressure. You got to go to the press. And if you do this, and, and when he says it to a man, they'll go, that totally is true. And it is true. Um, I think the sad thing is, it, it's more effective than what people think. And that's the thing they underestimate. Um, but because of where basketball has gone at a high level, especially the Division One level, I find it to be pretty boring a lot of times. Not not all times, but I think a lot of the basketball has turned very boring, and it's a copycat thing uh, where the NBA has always been a copycat league. So when the Warriors kind of got, you know, when the Suns saw some success, then the Spurs see success, everyone starts to copy them, and now the game actually gets better because of it. Uh, in college basketball at the high level, we used to have, a lot of diversity. And everyone talks about diversity now and only skin color, but we're talking about the way teams play. Um, you know, we had Loyola Marymount and people remember that, but they were the extreme. We still had Oklahoma average in 90 to 100. We still had Texas doing that under Penders. We still had all these pockets where, you know, in final four games that were in the '90s, right? And nowadays you have only the best teams with the ability to do that. And I, I don't think people are thinking clearly enough about that because if you're the underdog, you really need to differentiate yourself. Um, but I think what most people are doing uh, is just all trying to play like Goliath to keep things close so that at the end of the game, they have the normal coach answers that are all cliche and a bunch of nonsense because uh, is that we're going to do this and we did things the right way and then they executed better than we did. No, they didn't. Neither team did. The, the other team's best player hit two shots and your team didn't. Like That's that's what really happened in the game. That's what the real story was. You didn't execute your plays and this kid made a play and made two tough shots and your kid didn't. That wasn't execution. Right? I watched the game. and But that is what flies at the press conference. So therefore, that's how we'll play. Um, and there's risk. There's unbelievable risk involved in that. But it's hidden risk that People have just come to accept and act like it isn't there. And that's a whole nother. My brother and I were actually just talking about that one on our, on our new radio thing.
0: Well, and I agree with what you're saying. But where I consider there to be no risk is to change how you practice because the press aren't watching how you practice. And that's where I still feel I, I don't understand why people don't consider playing basketball the best way to transfer things to a basketball game. And these drill-based on-air practices featuring a lot of one-on-oh skill development stuff, we know that's not the best way to develop players. And we're still holding on to this notion uh, from a textbook 50 years ago of what basketball development is. And we're just smarter. Like even the things you've said in this podcast, there's evidence, research-based evidence in teaching and learning circles behind everything that you've said that is supported.
1: A hundred percent. And a lot of it are are what educators are trying to do in the classroom. I think the the thing is, is at high levels, um, oftentimes they're full of people who haven't developed those teaching skills. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, that's where I am. You know, I'd like to coach at a division one level someday. I'm in no rush. I have a great life and maybe I don't, I don't know, but I want to become an expert teacher first. And usually what gets you the job isn't the same thing that makes you really good at the job at that level. And 100%. that's because, frankly, a lot of administrators have no clue what they're doing. Search firms don't know what they're actually looking for. It's a game, right? It's like, he's tied him to so-and-so and the agents are involved. And I'm just not playing that game. I, I already did that game for my professional career. I don't need that. But um, is, is it to become great at something, uh, particularly in the realm of teaching, you have to do the same thing we're talking about with these players. You have to diversify your teaching circles, right? So I always tell people, my first two years, I was with the men's and women's teams at Rowan. I did not want to coach the women's team. And yet I learned more and enjoyed it more than I ever would have imagined. I did not set out to start a bunch of youth basketball stuff and think through all this stuff. And I actually, another plug, I forgot I wrote a handbook about all this stuff. For the season, and I gotta update that. But <laughs> I just did it. I do things just because I really am passionate about it and do it, and then I don't forget all about it. But um, and I want to learn as much as anybody. But I think that notion of teaching and philosophy—that's not emphasized in our current climate. Now, if frankly, like I think a lot of what sells people on getting a job is what looks good on Instagram or or Twitter. And it's not substance. It's just nonsense. That's not that important of like, hey, I went to 45 events in the last 30 days. That it it means nothing. Like, we, this is, these are the kind of things that like you have to work hard, right? You have to recruit, but it's, it's a lot of it is nonsense. A lot of it's a game people are playing. It's not anything of any real substance, but that's what flies right now. And I'm just, I just, I'm just not the kind of person who can, who can fake it.
0: We'll have to do another podcast on things we feel are overrated in coaching because I'm sure we both have lists of those things. Uh, but it does strike me. I mean, I get the importance of recruiting. I know recruiting is important. I know having good players is important. You know what is also important? Being able to develop those players, being able to coach those players. And I just think the NCA Division I model, especially, is just so emphasis on so much emphasis on recruiting that it negates that other part quite a bit. And how about if you had someone on your staff that could just coach the crap out of those players and help them improve. Like that puts it in a situation where you've got the best of both
1: worlds. 100%. And in terms of development, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of creative development people out there, but one of the things I always say to people developmentally, right. And I I'm at division three, I can't work with my guys in the off season. So I'm pretty limited. So I have to teach them how to develop themselves, right? Like that's what I view my job is of like, I have to give them their own pedagogy. Like, I have to help them understand how they learn uh, during the season and then like explaining these things to them. And usually I have a couple guys who get it and can kind of spread those ideas. But kids won't develop, um, they won't develop skills that you don't allow them to do them in a game context. Right. And if they're not able to do it in a game context, they're not going to work on it in any sort of isolated way. Right. Even a way that is helpful, right? Kid going out and tinkering with things on their own, I think is great. I did that for years. But um, you know, I have a shooting gun. I don't think it's the best, but I I have one, and there's some there's some value to that. I prefer the rims up at Kindle School that are all different height. I think that's a better teacher. That's a whole another topic. But um, is what I found is if you don't prove to kids that they're going to be able to shoot this open three in a game if they get good at it, they won't work on it. So, then all your workouts are simply show. And I'm not into that. And it looks good and everyone's sweating and it's real hard, but you're not getting that much better. You're not really improving as much as you think you do. Um, The game, and this is what I say to kids in our leagues I just tell them like one made 26 footer in a game context, even three on three, even four on four, even in a half court league like we run on Monday nights, it's worth like a hundred. Makes by yourself. I have no research. I have nothing to support that. I just know I want kids who make shots in games. That means you need to make them in games. That doesn't mean you need to make them in games with a scoreboard. It just means it needs to be a game context. So if you're playing one on one, there's a hand in your face. And, you know, again, I return to my son and my daughter's, she loves getting on the Dr. Dish. We got a Dr. Dish in our backyard. She loves that. I'm glad she loves that. But I tell her, Put that away, get your sixth grade, seventh grade brother out here, my 12-year-old, my and play one-on-one and don't shoot any layups. Now, that doesn't mean I don't value... She has learned a lot through you know, her form and her ability to shoot in a short period of time. She's a late starter. But I think you need to play more one-on-one, right? That's how I grew up. My dad was always like, play one-on-one, play one-on-one, play one-on-one. Like, I'm going to work in the yard. You go play one-on-one. Figured, like that's how you get better. And there's a lot, a lot of wisdom in that.
0: There's a lot of wisdom in that. And and again, you never shoot in a game without a decision beforehand. So it it, is a that's, decision. that's what that's you're right. saying. You're creating that's right. decisions.
1: That's right. So the example I always give is when you tell a kid you have to shoot that. And his response is, I wasn't open. Yes, you were. You just didn't realize it. And when I hear that, I think, okay. We need to do way more two on two with closeouts, one on one, where I'm rewarding you shooting the ball because you have to learn that you are open in that context. You didn't know it because you don't have enough game experience. And we're talking about kids who are good shooters. We're not talking about kids who that just shows me they've spent too much time on the gun, right? Man, you got all that. 100%. Yeah. You you've you've got all that, right? And and that's one of my complaints. You know, about shooting. And that's something that I, I did a shooting group this summer where I, I kind of made some videos for kids each week and something to think about. And they're usually thoughts that, that kids don't consider. That's one of the things I, a book I want to write called The Soul of a Shooter about the guts of shooting, about risk assessment, about all these things that we're not developing in kids. Um, you know, when I, I shot 33 shots in my second high school game, 24 of them were threes. I only made seven. Now, my team played very fast. I had a coach that was very aggressive. I was our best shooter close. And I was the only guy who could really do things off the dribble. So they weren't all good shots, but my other, my teammates weren't all shooting good shots either, but that, those kind of experiences developed something in me that made me who I was as a player. That wasn't pretty to watch. There's no way that was pretty to watch. Now I did go for 20 in the fourth quarter, so it ended well, but. And we almost won. But if there were games that I didn't go for 20 in the fourth quarter. And fortunately, people don't remember that. They just remember the ones I scored 40 or 50 or when high school or 35. They think it was 40 at Penn State. I'm like, I didn't. I never had 40, but I'm glad you think it was 40. But those kind of learning experiences aren't pretty. And yet, we're not, you know, if you want to develop these players with these capabilities, these are the things you kind of, these are the freedoms you have to give them, right? These are the, and that, that leads to a whole other thing about like kids going to higher levels and transferring up schools. And then they wonder why they're not good in two years Well, because you've been a role player. You've just been a role player your whole life. You spent seven years as a role player and you've developed this one really good thing that I don't need right now. And yeah, you don't realize that I feel bad. But if you want to develop as a broad-based, really wise basketball player, I need you to play bad more for those seven years instead.
0: Do you recruit any players based on how they defend in high school? No. Yeah.
1: Not at all.
0: Okay. And I'd like more people from a development perspective to understand that, you know, because everyone talks about, oh, well, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you know, get really good at offense. Yep. Don't yep. you and feel that you can teach defense to them?
1: Well, I mean, you're talking to me, right? I know, like, but I'm just my-
0: saying, I think, I think we've got to start to change that mentality too.
1: Well, so, I mean, me personally, not just yeah. as a coach. Like, yeah. I, I wasn't a good defender. Yeah. Right. I, in high school, we averaged like 85, 90 points a game. And we would just say, why don't you guys go score? Cause we're not going to wait for you. Like, we need to get this game moving. That's essentially what we did. Cause I'm playing with my brother. He's amazingly talented offensively. And, you know, he was, he's a better example, but you can pick up on those skills. And again, I was never a great defender. So I, my son is a way better defender than I was. He's got great hands, not the quickest, but he's got a good feel for defense. I always wanted to give him that. But when push comes to shove, offense does win in more ways than you think. It opens up doors and opportunities. And you want to develop these broad-based skills of offense. So you do want some skills that you can make world-class. But I think when we think of that, um, developmentally, like kids say, well, I want to have a skill that I, as a, I'm a a world class at this skill, right? Um, that's later on in life, right? You don't want to develop that too early, right? You want to set the stage so that you can develop it, but you also want to develop it in a way that's pretty distinct, pretty um, specific later on. Well, the example for that for me would be like shooting deep threes off the dribble, right? That's something that, My son is pretty good at for his age and will be, he could become world-class if he wants to, right? Mm -hmm. That's up to him. He's going to have to put a lot of work in to get there if he wants to be that level. But how do you get to the point where you have that possibility? It's not pretty, Mm -hmm. right? And you need to play in a lot of environments where you fail and don't look good. And that doesn't, it can mean the weekend. If, as long as you care, as long as you're willing to lose, right? I lose 70, 60, 70% of my youth games because of it. Because I want them to develop all these skills. Um, now, when I get to my college players, now we go, okay, I want you to develop. I want you to move. But not tonight. It's Wednesday night and we're here to win a game. And we want to win by 25. And I don't need you shooting a fadeaway 15-footer you know, because I got him, him, and him who are better. And you can finish around the rim. Now you, now you specialize, right? But we're in practice in October. I got to find out what can you do? What have you been working on all summer? Um, these are the kind of things that I think we narrow kids down too early in life. And then we realize like you've become a specialist in one thing offensively. And okay, of course, everyone's, I don't think anyone's defense is great in high school, but you, you need to be able to contribute offensively to play at that next level in you can only do so in one way. So, you know, there's a there's ten other kids just like you, and maybe five of them are six four, and you're six foot.
0: It's just you're creating. You're trying to create adaptable, independent, anti fragile players.
1: Hundred percent. Those are kids who can play.
0: They can right? play anywhere, and as you
1: said. They can play, and that's we use that in our program. I mean, we're a public school. Um, you know, we've kind of had ups and downs as a program, and recruiting for us is we want to be anti-fragile in the way we recruit so we have a lot of transfers because we're that kind of institution um i also think older players are better and i like kids who have suffered so they are a little they're fragile in some respects because maybe they've had a negative experience but they're anti-fragile in the sense that they've they've learned that they don't like something so they're clearer about what they want as players well when you talk about recruiting and the kind of players you get at that level, you, we ask ourselves, like, can he play with us? That, that's a question we talk. Can he play? That's what we say as a staff. Can he play? Well, what do we mean by that? That doesn't mean, all my players are very different. They're very different. Usually we, want, we don't want more than two of the same, right? We, got, we can handle two if you're pretty similar and maybe we can handle three or four if you're like, Crazy knockdown shooters, Uh, but usually you got to be able to do something else too—good defender or whatever. But we're always asking that question: Is can he play? And that's that's our vibe, right? That's our vibe as a program is is we we just play. What do we do? We just play. We hoop, right? We ball. That's your ballers, right? This is why we say to them, like I joke with them, like you really need. And doesn't mean we won't use some structure they can build on, right? Of course we'll do those things, but I always joke with them like uh, one of my first, my first NCAA team, um, we went to the NCA's. I said, we got to adjust this inbounds play. We had one, but we could do like four different things off it and it was up to them to make that read. And it was very, very effective for us. And our guys had good rapport with each other and they communicated well and they would solve the problem. And then I was like, all right, guys, they're on top of this and they're zoning up on us. Let's, let's give them a different look. You're pretty much doing the same thing, but let's look it up here. And one of my players said, hey, Coach, coach, you putting in a play? <laughs> and I said, I, oh, so naturally I turned it on him. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. timeout. You know, this is, I said, I, I was under the impression that we were some serious ballers around here. I thought that's who I had as a team. Am I wrong? Do you need, you need more help from me? You, I said, Tariq, when you go to the rec, Later, are you calling plays over at the rec to to keep court? Is that's what I didn't think I had that kind of team, right? And so now everyone's laughing. And but that's our identity. That that was my identity was like as a coach. That's my identity because that was my identity as a player. Is like I got you, coach. You've given me what I need. Now sit down and let me win for you. That's the way I. That's when I was at my best. I want players like that. So. Sadly, there's not as many of them as, as there probably should be in the world today.
0: Yeah, but if we develop them the right way, according to a lot of the stuff you've shared here, there will be many players like that. And many of us as coaches can sit down, which would be a wonderful thing. The um, other part about this anti-fragility thing is I can say this in support of what you're saying throughout this whole podcast. And it's just simply you cannot train mindset for success in cone drills or on air drills like you can in games
1: hundred percent that's when you talk about the gut, right? is yep. what does it take to be the guy who I've said this to especially my best players over the years. There was one clip on YouTube uh, of me in Italy, and I remembered it, but i some had somebody had sent it to me, and i we'd missed something last minute. I remember the game it was against scafati we were the we were the best team in the league that year. We're not really playing that great and they go down and make a bucket and cut it to two. And it's a two for one kind of situation but we're going to hold and just get what we want. I dribbled for 18 seconds. I waved everyone down and then I shot a step back three and I made it and we won. And I asked my my guy who was my leading scorer Nick Persia. I said, "Was that a good shot?" And he knows it's a trick question, right? I said, was it a good shot? And he goes, yes. And I said, yes, it was a good shot. I said, but would most people, coaches or people say that was a good shot? And he goes, no. I, I dribbled. I didn't, no one else touched the ball. Everyone in the whole place knew what I was going to do. I was going to take that shot or I was going to get somebody else's shot on my own, period. And as, as long as there was only one person, I'm shooting it, right? We watched Steph Curry do it. We watched. But I said, that was a good shot because that's what I was paid to do on that team right? This was my place on that team. I had earned it throughout the season. I owned that moment. I wanted that shot. I could deal with the failure. My team could deal with me failing in that moment. Well, how do you get to that point? Now, there are some things you can't control, but there's a lot of things as coaches we can do to help players get to that point quicker than we might think. So even as a coach now, I'm going to have new players, and I have a couple that I already know they have it. Right. Even though they're new, they know they have that. And it's not going to take me much. Some guys take one conversation, one conversation. I've had guys that takes one conversation. This is how I do things. Don't you make me tell you not to shoot? You make me tell you when you're being too aggressive. And they go, All right, I'm in on that. And it's done. I have others who I say need to go to basketball rehab. They've been taught and constrained to such an extreme that they've lost the it, they've lost the guts of the game. And my proudest moments as a coach are when those guys hit three threes in a row in the NSA tournament, which has happened. Who, when they step up and hit three threes in a row in the NJAC finals and go pop, pop, pop. And I knew they didn't have that six months prior. That's coaching to me is getting to the guts and getting out that confidence, that self, that willingness to take risks. How do you create those kind of players? And pretty much the exact opposite. Doing the exact opposite of what a lot of people are doing and people want that and this is what i always say to people like they want i was i used to do it very regularly when i was a main player on my team i'd hit three threes in a row i'd score nine or ten eleven points in a row i'd be like asleep and then all of a sudden i wake up and pop 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 and the other team calls time out and the whole game's changed right people would laugh and then, or I would be bad for two and a half quarters or three quarters. And then all of a sudden the fourth quarter would come and in Italy, they had to sign that it would be Crispin time. And they knew the fourth quarter. I, I just loved the fourth quarter, right? I'd come alive in the fourth quarter. Like that was my time. And it didn't matter what happened before that. That's what I wanted. Well, how did I develop that? I developed that at Pittman High School. I developed that in Pittman Middle School by, by taking my lumps or on Saturday mornings or in playing games and pickup games where I got to shoot the game winner four different times. That's how you develop those things. But I got to take risks throughout my entire youth that enabled me to develop those skills. I want to give my players the chance to do that. And when you do, it's amazing. They think I'm the greatest coach. I'm like, what did I do? I just let you shoot and tap into your gut. But it's a different mindset with what you're trying to create and teach and develop. It's like, man, I don't give a rip what pivot foot you use. I want you to have the guts to own this moment. When the, everyone, the seats are full, the lights are bright and you just change the game in a minute because, and two of those shots weren't even good technically, but they made the other team call timeout. They changed the whole game and we're, we're, there's a 0% chance we're going to lose. Well, how do you develop that? I always say the coaches want that, but they don't want the process to get that. And that's a huge, huge mistake. And we're leaving a ton of untapped potential. And you can tell I could talk all day about that.
0: But that's the key point there is that the the mess, the mistakes, the failures, that's all part of the process that gets to the point that you're at as a player. And uh, I say it all the time. I say it on the podcast. Sometimes creativity comes from permission and freedom. The same, the player that you're describing comes from freedom and permission. And if you're not going to give someone permission and freedom to become that player, they're not going to become that player. Nope. And again, this other part of this that you're saying is, look, this player does not come from building this base of 1-on-0 skill and then expecting them to be able to apply it in a game. You've got 100%. to learn from the game.
1: And, and the other thing I would say to that is you have to learn from the game. right? Even if the game's to 7, if you get to hit the game winner to get to 7, that's a game winner. Well, if you play enough of those games, you've hit thousands of game winners. Right? And even with the, the, the gut mentality of like trying to cultivate the, the gut is I think a lot of coaches, just in my experience, um, are just bad risk analysis. They're doing bad risk analysis because they're seeing the risks involved in missing two of those three, but they're not really weighing it against the benefit of making three in a row. And there are such tremendous benefits. The, the one story I, I always share is when I was in Spain, I got there mid-half of the year and I, I was a wild card, right? Like I did shoot, I played like Curry before there was Curry, right? And I was as good as him, but I, I don't know. I, I could shoot the three really, really well at a high clip, but I didn't do it in the normal way. And a lot of coaches struggle with that. We had a coaching change while we were winning. And probably three weeks into this coaching change, four weeks, I had a game where I had 35. We won by 20. There was 11,000 people in the gym in Spain. It was wide open and it was fun. And we we beat them and it was a nice little win. And they brought me in the office a couple of days later to watch film and they had broken up all my shots individually um, out of context. And so I'm watching, right? And I'm 28 at this point, I guess. And I'm pretty stuck in my ways to a point of like, I know who I am, right? Like, if you don't like it, I'll go somewhere else. But this is, this is how I can help you. And what they were showing was like how outside the offense this was, right? I, I'm one on four and I'm pulling up for three and I'm hitting it. And there's 11,000 people going crazy. Then there's another clip where I pull up from, you know, mid range and I miss it. And well, I, I like this. One. I didn't like this one. I didn't like that. And so essentially what he was saying was I didn't like how you scored the tw- 35 to help us blow the other team up by 20. And his English wasn't great. So it was kind of hit me in the assistant coach and I'm trying to explain him. And I just said, listen, like you just brought me in here and you neglected the entire context of the game. So you, you ne- I made the other team called two timeouts. They only get four or three, I think in that league. What's that worth to you, right? What's that, where, where is that in your risk analysis, right? We won by 20 and we broke the game wide open. And oh, by the way, I scored more in the first half than I did in the second half because in the second half, they made an adjustment to all these things and my other guys were going off. So you are sitting here breaking down the game of page 11 in the textbook that you have in your mind and you've lost the soul and the guts of the game. Well, guess what else he lost? He lost me. He lost me. I'm just like, dude, I have a skill that nobody else in the league has. and now. I'm not really believing in what you're doing because you don't really understand what I can do to help you win. And eventually we ended up losing in the semifinals and he played me less than he probably should have. And we were loaded. We had no business losing. But that's what happens. And we do that to kids at every level college, high school, JV, freshman, sixth grade for crying out loud. Like how many fifth and sixth grade coaches are yelling at kids not to shoot and to get the ball to the kid who hit puberty two years before everyone else? who's not going to grow another inch, by the way. And then they're going to wonder four years later, they're going to be yelling at the opposite kids to shoot. And they're going to wonder why they can't do it, right? It's so wrong, but it's also the contextual. This this game is messy. This game is about feel. This game is about guts. And if you are a good risk assessor, you'll realize that if you let your players tap into that, you will lose at times because of it, but you're going to win more. And I think as a college coach, I think you'll attract better talent with a little less work, come to think of it, I I think.
0: Coach, so many amazing things. Thank you for sharing with us. Uh, I cannot wait to watch your team of five Joe Crispins on the floor all the time. <laughs> that, that, that's my dream to watch that.
1: <laughs> well, we, we always try to keep it fun. And that's where we tell people, especially locally, say, hey, now if you come watch us, uh, the one thing I can sure is we're never boring. Uh, that doesn't mean it's perfect every night or it's always pretty, because if you don't bring it, sometimes it's not. But I really, and that's the last thing I'd leave you with is like, basketball is supposed to be fun. Uh, as a player, I often was too intense and too concerned about winning, but it's supposed to be fun. You're supposed to be able to stretch yourself and your boundaries. And I think when you tap into the, the, the true joy of it, um, you, you often increase your chances of winning at the same time.
0: Coach, thanks for listening to the Basketball Podcast. We appreciate your ongoing support. Please consider going to basketballimmersion.com and immersionvideos.com. To check out all the products we have to offer. We appreciate your support and we look forward to continuing to share the game with you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.